All right, so take your Bibles now as we prepare to um, just uh, probe some of the great questions or try to at least touch on every question. All of them really uh, are, are appreciated. Appreciate those of you who give thought and time and uh, attention to wrestle through these things. Uh, they're in no special order, just sort of how they were handed to me. And some of them, um, since the questions can be about a Bible passage or topic, some of them we don't have to turn to a certain passage, other times we will. Uh, the first one doesn't really have a passage per se. Well, we, we are going to turn uh, turn to 1 Timothy 2. It's not specifically on this passage, but we'll answer it from 1 Timothy 2. Um, so the question is actually a series of questions uh, saying this, uh, why does the Methodist church change pastors every seven years? If the pastor who comes to the church is not one who teaches from the Bible or only uses small verses to sometimes link thoughts together, uh, then why keep him for seven years? Or on the other side, if you have a pastor who is a solid teacher of the Scripture, uh, so why, why move him on? This can affect a person's faith. And so why? I, I don't know the answer to that. I know it's not the only denomination that does that kind of thing, that there are denominations that uh, move their pastors around. And I didn't even know that the Methodist denomination had a seven-year cycle. Uh, I do know, as I say, that that's not uncommon in some, that they move pastors every two years or every five years. Or evidently, in this case, you're saying every seven years. Uh, I don't know that there's a, tr- a certain passage they try to link it to, or if it's just more of a pragmatic thing saying, you know, after seven years, uh, that's, that's enough time in one spot, and it's better to move on. I'm not sure. Uh, but, but your objections uh, that are, you know, posed in the question are valid. If you have someone who's a pastor who's not true to Scripture, then why would you want to endure that for seven years? Or if you have a pastor who is faithful to the Word of God, why say your time is up and move on? So it's a valid question, but I don't really have an answer. You'd have to ask, I guess, someone in the Methodist denomination or church the rationale behind that. And then a follow-up on that same topic, why are there women pastors in their church? And the simple answer to that question is because they do not believe 1 Timothy chapter 2 Uh, where Paul says in verse 11, I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man, but to be in silence. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Nevertheless, she will be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. This is a faithful saying. If a man desires the position of overseer, and that would be synonymous with elder, pastor, bishop, etc. He desires a good work. So without doing any, an exposition here uh, on, on 1 Timothy 2, the, the long and short of it is that the Apostle Paul here is talking about order in the church and the Holy Spirit's uh, design in the church. And he, the Holy Spirit led Paul to say that when it comes to the office of elder slash pastor, uh, pastor, teacher, etc., that that is a role that God has designed for men and men are to be in that role. And uh, many in the Methodist denomination, and not, it's not the only denomination, by the way, but many just don't believe that. They try to say it's cultural, it's not applicable today, uh, even though the two reasons that the Holy Spirit guided Paul to give were creation, verse 13, and the fall, verse 14. Now, neither of those issues is cultural. 
So to try to pass it off as cultural really doesn't hold water. But that's the short answer. Why are there women pastors in their church or in any of the denominations? It is because of a fundamental um, uh, disagreement with what the Holy Spirit guided Paul to say in 1 Timothy chapter 2. All right, next question. Let's turn to Luke chapter 8, though, again, it's not specifically on Luke 8. Uh, Luke chapter 8. And the question is this, since Jesus assigned one of the 12 disciples to be the treasurer, of course, we know it was Judas, how did Jesus and the disciples receive support? Well, we're given a hint of that here in in Luke chapter 8, where it says, Uh, Verse 2, certain women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary called Magdalene, out of whom he had cast seven demons, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's steward, and Susanna, and many others who provided for him from their substance or from their possessions. So the answer to your question, how did Jesus and the disciples receive support? People supported them. People gave them support from their own money, their own possessions to support their ministry. So really, it's not unlike what we do today with missionaries. Uh, people decide to get behind missionaries and, and will give them support, and they may give them support directly or may give it through an agency. Well, in a similar way, uh, people would give, and they found out the avenues through which they needed to give. And they would find out, they would ask, how can we support uh, the Lord's ministry? And, of course, The disciples, not knowing, would probably say, give it to Judas. He's the treasurer. So it was all funneled through Judas. But this is just a little interesting uh, insight from Dr. Luke because it's not something we often think about, that really Jesus, you know, we, we, we just have such an ethereal view of Jesus that he just sort of walked around uttering these parables that weren't related to anything. And we, we don't think about how the, just the practical issues of the ministry and uh, he, that he uttered parables in response to situations, not just out of the blue, and that he had to live. The disciples had to live. People supported them. And this is one of those little windows into what was going on behind the scenes. And here we have uh, the Holy Spirit lists a number of ladies who supported our Lord's ministry from their own possessions or their own substance. All right, next question says this. Uh, Pastor Brian, in an attempt to examine each area of my life through a biblical lens, I'm really wrestling through the issue of birth control. I would value your thoughts on the subject. Thank you. And then this is kind of cute. P.S. I'm blessed to be in a solid Christian marriage. So they want to make sure that I knew they were married since they're asking about that topic. Well, that's good that you're married if you're asking about that topic. Um, The issue of birth control is, I don't think, one that is directly addressed in Scripture, though I do think there are principles. Uh, Let me sort of come at this from the back door. It is very uh, common today, a very common approach uh, to this topic uh, is the view that says, and and the support for the view I I will get into, but the view that says uh, that since the Bible does not address birth control, then therefore uh, Christians should not use birth control. And here is the biblical support for that. Uh, People who hold to that view will say, well, look at all the passages where the Bible says the Lord opened the womb or the Lord closed the womb. 
And there are many passages that say that. You could, you could point to numerous passages that say the Lord opened the womb and the Lord closed the womb. So the argument goes like this. The Bible repeatedly says the Lord opens the womb and closes the womb. Therefore, God is the one who is in sovereign control of conception and whether or not a wife gets pregnant or conception takes place. Therefore, you and I should not do anything to affect that in any way whatsoever. Sounds pretty solid until you realize how many times the Bible says the Lord opens and closes the heavens when it comes to rain. I could show you probably as many verses that say the Lord opens and closes the heavens in relation to rain. But do we use the same logic to say because God is sovereign over rain and the Lord opens the heavens and closes the heavens, you should do absolutely nothing about the rain? So if you're getting lots and lots of rain and your house is starting to be flooded, don't put up sandbags because God is sovereign over the rain. Or to turn that on the coin on the other side, if you plant a garden or if you're a farmer or a rancher and you don't get any rain, you should not irrigate because you are interfering with the sovereignty of God. God opens and closes the heavens. Well, it's true that God opens and closes the heavens. But I don't know of any Christian who would say, because God, because God opens and closes the heavens, therefore there's something wrong with us trying to get more rain or trying to prevent rain if we feel like there's too much water. In the same way, all I'm saying is you need to be consistent. If, that's the, if that is your basis for birth control, that the Lord opens the womb and closes the womb, and you think therefore it's wrong to use birth control, then you need to be consistent in every area where the Bible talks about what the Lord sovereignly controls and doesn't control. But again, I don't know of any Christians who would say, that's the, my view on birth control, you shouldn't use it, but... I'm never going to step into any arena where the Bible says God is sovereign over that arena. Now, that is not necessarily then an argument for birth control, but what it does do is I think it removes that's, that's what's sometimes a straw man that some Christians, maybe, again, I don't want to put it in a negative light, but maybe you know, just in sincerity think you know, that this is, this is the, the biblical view uh, when re in reality it can be a, a straw man that says, uh, well, God is sovereign over that, so we, we just don't touch that area at all. So, again, does that argue for birth control? No, it doesn't. So uh, I actually am the one that, that we, those of you who know about our premarital counseling, we do uh, several week premarital counseling. Uh, and I am the one that does the very last session on physical intimacy. And in physical intimacy, we talk about birth control. None of the other pastors or elders will touch that subject, so they've given it to me. So I'm the one that always has to cover that at the end. But the thing I always say at the end is this. Uh, I don't believe you can make a biblical case for or against. I almost see it more as a matter of conscience. So you just need to, you need to sort of like meat offered to idols, uh, something that's uh, sort of a gray area. You need to pray about it. You need to be fully convinced in your own mind, wrestle through it, and then, and then uh, whatever you and your spouse, whatever conclusion you come to, you just need to have thought it through, prayed about it, and then landed where you want to land. So I'm not arguing against those who say, we're not going to use any birth control. If that is your conviction before God, that's fine. The only thing I am arguing against is don't try to impose that on others or everyone else by saying God opens the womb, God closes the womb. So therefore, if you choose to use birth control, you are doing wrong. So that would be my response to the subject. Our right, next question says this. 
uh, Pastor Brian was reading the story of Moses and the burning bush to my child, and I found myself wondering about God's response to Moses' insecurity about his ability to speak eloquently. We are told that we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. Uh, What significance for us today is there in God's willingness to relieve Moses of that responsibility, appointing Aaron to do that for him? I find it comforting, but also wonder when we do or can we hope God will do the same in our lives when we feel incapable. Is it inappropriate to do so? Am I overthinking this topic? Very typical of me. Smiley face. Um, Well, if you go back and read the story of Moses, yes, God did grant to Moses that exception, if you will. In other words, Moses was to be the spokesman. But if you read the story, God was not pleased that Moses kept saying, I can't do that. I'm not eloquent of speech. I, you know, get, get someone else, etc." So it's almost, as you read the story, that God... I don't know if you want to say condescended or gave in and said, okay, Moses, you keep objecting. Uh, You know, for a man who can't speak well, you're doing a pretty good job of objecting. God didn't say that, but that's sort of the way it reads. Uh, But God said, okay, I will let your brother Aaron do that for you. So I don't know that I would want to use that passage um, to say, well, if if we aren't willing, if we sort of resist, then God will find someone else and it'll be okay. Now, granted, it is okay in the sense that God is sovereign. We're not going to thwart his purposes and what he wants to do through us. If we're not willing to do it, we feel we can't when really we can by God's grace, then he will probably find another way to do it or use some other means in our lives. So you don't need to panic like, oh, if, I, you know, if I'm nervous about something, if I'm fearful like Moses was, you know, I'm going to totally thwart the plan of God and ruin everything. You know, God is much bigger than you. God is much bigger than me. We don't, we don't have to think that way. But uh, I, I, I like the way you were going at first when you said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That is, I can handle any situation in life that God calls me to handle. And I think that's where we want to land. Not say, well, but since Moses sort of relinquished and God gave in, then somehow that that means that we hope he'll do the same when we feel incapable. Rather, I would say, when we feel incapable, rather than Moses was basically making excuses. Rather than trying to find an excuse, when we feel incapable, uh, we turn to God for grace, for more grace. To say, God, if you've called me to do this, you will supply the grace for me to do this. And I don't want to ask you to you know, relieve me of it and someone else do it. So if you've called me, I want to be faithful. And I think that's the, the better route to go with it, uh, but not in the sense of making you panic if you feel like, well, I can't and and somehow you've you know, thwarted the eternal plan of God in your life somehow. All right, next question says this. Pastor Brian, would you speak on common law marriage from the perspective of what's, what God's Word says about it? A common law marriage, if you're not familiar with it, and it's different from state to state. I don't even know exactly what it is in our state. I'm vaguely familiar with it. But basically, common law marriage is this. If, if a couple has been together for X number of years, and I think... In our state, it's seven years. Uh, So if you've been together for seven years, then that is considered a common law marriage. So in a sense, at that point, you're married. So what would God's God's word say about it? Well, the problem, of course, is this. Um, if If you as a Christian would be considering that, what that would mean is you are living in sin for seven years until you're married, right? Because you're living together 
and you're not married, and then after seven years, then you have a common law marriage. So that obviously is not acceptable. Now, if you are someone who, as an unbeliever, you're living together, and then, uh, you know, uh, after seven years, you you're, have a common law marriage, and then uh, you, you get saved, and you say, oh, man, all that time we were living in sin, but now it's a common law marriage. Is that okay? Well, even that, you, you might be able to argue it's okay because at that point it is a common law marriage. But the other problem with a common law marriage is because it's only a common law marriage, if my understanding is correct, that therefore you can just walk away from it without doing anything, and it ends. In other words, you don't have to go through a divorce proceeding, so there's really still no commitment. And, and at, at the core of what God views in marriage is the commitment, which is why we often do it uh, publicly and in some type of ceremony. Now, the ceremony is not all that significant in and of itself uh, because God will recognize whatever any government, state, or country, or culture recognized. You know, the Jews had their, uh, they had their unusual uh, ceremony. Some of you are familiar with what they would do with betrothal, and then the bridegroom would go get his bride, and you, you knew all those stages, etc. Uh, and all of that was recognized as a legal marriage. And in our country, you either go before, you know, a justice of the peace, or a judge, or a pastor, you sign a marriage certificate, etc. So whatever a given culture or, or group recognizes as a legal marriage is a legal marriage. I've often said, you know, maybe if, you know, the Eskimos, they throw snowballs at each other and then they're married, okay? If that's the way they do it, then that's what's recognized as legally binding you, then you're legally bound. Uh, but again, the problem with a common law marriage is you're not married for all the years until you are married. And then once you are married, you're not married in the sense of needing anything legal to uh, you know, as a binding covenant, which is, is the, the core issue before God. So common law marriage has uh, all sorts of problems uh, from a biblical point of view or from God's perspective. All right, next question, back to Mark chapter 14 from uh, this morning's message, um, chapter 14, and it says this, uh, Mark 14, 32 to 42, especially verse 36 also, God the Father's thoughts or feelings about having to pour out his wrath on his son and be separated from him. Uh, verse 36, he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not I will, but what you will. Uh, you know, we aren't told a lot about the Father's perspective uh, more about the son's perspective because he is the focus of the gospel accounts. But I think it's safe to say just from passages and even from the, the hint, if you will, of the darkness that covered the land that at that point God the Father was not in a paternal relationship with his son Jesus. He was in a judicial relationship with him as he poured out his wrath on him. And so since the Father, Son, and Spirit are equal and the same distinct, uh, in, you know, the same in substance, but distinct in subsistence. And if the son dreaded and agonized over being separated from the father, it's by no means a stretch to say that the father agonized over having to be separated from his son and be in a judicial relationship, not a paternal relationship. Uh, that's more of a, a biological extension because it's not stated, because as I said, everything is stated, or most everything, from the son's perspective as being the focus of the gospel accounts. Our next question says this, uh, also related, since we are only forgiven because Jesus took God's wrath and was separated from the Father, 
Could we rightly say that God feels or remembers that pain whenever we sin and ask forgiveness? Um, again, because I can't, I can't point to chapter and verse, I would feel more comfortable with your wording where you say that God feels, dash, or remembers. Certainly, the basis of God's forgiveness is the cross. And so in that sense, you are correct, that God remembers. And you even have judicial language elsewhere in the Scripture. For example, uh, 1 John 2, 1, where John says, These things I write to you that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father. So we have a defense attorney with the Father pleading our case. And so the Son pleads our case legally, judicially, if you will, and the basis for him to be the advocate and for the Father to say, that's right, all is forgiven, is certainly the cross. So uh, in that sense, then I would say that we could rightly say that God remembers that as the basis for our forgiveness. But what God feels, I'm not implying he doesn't, I just don't feel comfortable saying God has a certain feeling uh, when we don't have chapter and verse that God has a certain feeling. So I would feel more comfortable with your term remembers or sees that as the basis of that forgiveness. All right, next, uh, pass, or next question, 2 Corinthians 5. Again, this passage is not referenced in the question, but I think it will help us uh, with, with the answer to the question. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And uh, the question is this, uh, when Christians die, their soul goes to heaven to be with the Lord. That's right, soul, spirit, inner man. And their body is placed in the grave. What kind of body do they have, if any? Well, let me begin by saying that uh, commentators and theologians are not agreed on that topic. Uh, Some, based on 2 Corinthians 5, believe that there is a temporary body that we have until we get our permanent bodies. Uh, And as we read in 2 Corinthians 5 here in just a second, you can see how maybe they could get that. I'm of the persuasion that we don't have any body until uh, 1 Thessalonians 4 happens, where 1 Thessalonians 4 says in verse 13, the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, the voice of the archangel, the trumpet of God. The dead in Christ will rise first, and we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. In other words, all of us get our bodies at the same time. Uh, all of us get our new bodies. So even though it is very common, and please don't pop anyone's bubble uh, or burst anyone's balloon on this one. Don't be uh, insensitive and, and, and try to correct this, but it's very common at a funeral to hear someone say, talking about their mom or their dad or something, to say, oh, you know, my dad was in so much pain, and I'm so glad he's released from that now, and he has his new body in heaven. Well, he doesn't have his new body, but it doesn't do any good to go up to the person afterwards and say, he doesn't have his new body, all right? Uh, we, we understand. We, we understand that there, there is a release from that. But, but if it is true, according to 1 Thessalonians 4, that we all get our new bodies at the same time, when the Lord descends from heaven with a shout, the voice of the archangel, the trumpet of God, then nobody has a new body until that point. And here in 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says, We know that if our earthly house, this tent is destroyed, we have a building from God. A house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. So some will read that and say, see, the minute you go to be with the Lord, you have, you have a building from God. You have some type of body. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. If indeed having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. 
For we who are in this tent groan, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, that mortality may be swallowed up by life. So some take those verses to say, uh, we don't want to be unclothed. We don't ever want to be without a body. So when we go to be with the Lord, we will get, and, and this is a term that some theologians use, a temporary body until we, we get our permanent resurrection body. Uh, but if you read on, I don't think that the, the passage really supports that because verse 6 says, so we are always confident knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, yes, well, please rather, to be absent from the body and be present with the Lord. So where Paul seems to end here is he ends by saying that when we're absent from the body, we're present with the Lord. So we don't have a body. So we will be with the Lord, just like John saw in Revelation 6. I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded under the altar. No bodies, just souls. And uh, so I, my answer to the question, I think, uh, what kind of body do they have now? I don't think they have a body now. Uh, I think that we will all get our body at the same time, our new bodies at the same time, either through resurrection or through translation when we're caught up to be with the Lord. All right, next question says this. What should belief be based on? I know that some things in the Bible don't seem to be completely logical and understandable, so belief can't be based on rational faculties. Emotions and feelings are misleading, so belief cannot be based on what we feel is true either. How can a person know what to believe? Now, I don't want to, this is a really a great question, and I don't want to sound like a cliche, but the answer, how can a person know what to believe, is very simply what God has said. And that is why you're correct. You can't base it on rational faculties. If you say, I have to be able to understand it, to believe it, you're already on a wrong course. You're completely off course. Uh, and if you say, well, I have to feel a certain thing to believe it, well, you know, as you say, you're basing it on emotions or feelings. So uh, what, is the ba- what is belief based on? It is based on what God has said. And if God has said it, that is the basis of our belief, uh, whether we understand it or not, whether we can comprehend it or not. I- I've used this illustration many times in the past. You've probably heard me use it. Uh, I don't understand electricity, but when I walk in a room, I don't stand in the dark. I turn on the light. I don't have to understand electricity to turn the lights on. I don't have to understand everything God has said to believe it. If God has said it, I believe it. And so that is the basis of our belief, what God has said, not our uh, rational faculties, our emotion, our feeling, uh, our ability to understand, comprehend, etc. It is very fundamentally what God has said. All right, next question says this, uh, what benefit did the chief priests get from Judas betraying Jesus? Was it merely his location? Jesus never really hid. It seems they could have easily found him after Passover. You are correct. They could have found him after Passover. They could have found him at Passover. He never hid. He said that. He said, in fact, why, if, why have you come out with clubs and swords, you know? I was daily teaching in the temple. You could have got me there. You could have apprehended me there. But that was the very point. What the chief priest got from Judas was a private place. That is the Garden of Gethsemane. They didn't, they specifically didn't want to uh, arrest Jesus in the temple. They didn't want to arrest him anywhere else because, again, beloved, you just need to picture in your mind, everywhere Jesus went, he was literally mobbed by people. You remember the one occasion when the woman with a flow of blood touched him and Jesus stopped and said, who touched me? You remember what the disciples said? 
Lord, what do you mean who touched you? Look, you got, you know, 50,000 people around you, and you're going to say, who touched me? Come on, there's no way to know who touched you. A bunch of people are touching you. So that's the very scenario the chief priest wanted to avoid because they knew the Jewish people that, you know, they tried to arrest Jesus even if they didn't believe he was the Messiah, even if they didn't believe he was the Son of God. Oh, he's a healer, he's a prophet, and they're going to stone people who are trying to arrest him. So in order not to make a scene, in order not to get the crowds turned on them, what they got from Judas is where can we find this guy alone or basically alone where it's quiet, where we can apprehend him without a scene. And Judas knew exactly. Garden of Gethsemane, he'll be there after Passover. I'll take you to him. So that's what they got. They got exactly what they wanted, an opportunity to arrest Jesus out of the public eye. All right, next question says this. Uh, Socrates once asked, is something holy because the gods first it agree, or find it agreeable, or do the gods or God find it agreeable because it is holy? I would like to alter that and say, is a man righteous because God has chosen him, or does God choose him because he is righteous? Please answer both. I don't know if you mean both Socrates' statement or both of the questions at the end, but I'll try to answer Uh, First of all, the starting point is that Scripture repeatedly says there is none righteous, no, not one. So if you want to start there, then it, in a sense, gets the rest of the question headed down the right track. Uh, Is a man righteous because God has chosen him, or does God choose him because he is righteous? Well, if there is none righteous, no, not one, no one's righteous in God's eyes in and of himself, then that removes the idea that God chooses people because they are righteous. Which, by the way, also removes the idea, which is very common among Christians, that election is somehow based on foresight. That God looks forward in the future to see who will choose him, and then he chooses them. A lot of Christians believe that about election, but it just doesn't hold up under Scripture. God does not look forward to see who is going to choose him because inherent is that view is God looks forward in time to see who's going to choose him. Oh, that's a good guy. He chose me, so I will choose him. It's a nice theory. It's just not biblical. Uh, God's choice is based on his own sovereign purposes for reasons within himself. So uh, in answer to your question, uh, God chooses not because a person is righteous. And the fact, please hear this now, the fact that God chooses someone does not make that person righteous. Or let me say it another way. Election doesn't save you. The elect are just as damned as the non-elect until the elect place faith in Jesus Christ, right? The, The New Testament could not be any clearer that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. So it's not completely accurate to say we're saved by election. No, we're saved by grace through faith in Christ. So being elect doesn't make you saved. Now, granted, God, when God chooses, he's going to draw and grant the person faith, but it's just that we so easily uh, go down a logical track here instead of just staying biblical. So even in answer to your question, is a man righteous because God has chosen him? No, no. God has chosen, but the elect are just as unrighteous as the non-elect, even if they're chosen, until a person places faith in Christ. And when a person places faith in Christ, now that's the work of God. I recognize that. But that's when a person is declared righteous. So at that point, a person is declared righteous legally, but he's still not righteous actually. 
Because Romans 4 says, God justifies, that means to declare righteous, God justifies the, what is it? Ungodly. So we're ungodly when God says we're righteous. Sounds like a contradiction. It is because it's a positional issue. God declares us righteous when we're actually ungodly. And once he declares us righteous, he begins to make us righteous. So in answer to your question, is a man righteous because God has chosen him? No. Or does God choose him because he is righteous? No. There is none righteous. God chooses. God does the work in the heart, grants the faith to believe. When the person believes in Christ, he is then declared righteous. And God begins the process of making him righteous. All right, next question says this. Oops, catch it. Um, uh, coming off this morning's message of Hebrews 4.16 about turning to God for grace. Uh, help me understand also James 4.6, 1 Peter 5.5. 5. As believers, can we not appropriate daily grace to walk worthy because we are either, as James 4 says, holding on to something more than Christ. Uh, even a good desire, say, for a spouse to grow in maturity or a child to come to Christ. And in our pride, we forfeit grace, the daily power to walk worthy, or because we lack humility. Uh, Jesus says, not my will, but yours be done. Uh, we get daily enablement. We get grace to walk worthy. But basically, the question that's being asked here, okay, we are encouraged to turn to the Lord for grace. So is, is it automatic that if we go to the Lord for grace, we will be granted grace? Or can we do something, even in the midst of turning to the Lord for grace, to somehow block grace? And the answer to the question is absolutely. We can block grace. Even if we turn to the Lord, I, I like your, you know, the, the, just the illustration. In other words, if you are turning to the Lord and you are, you're demanding something, you're saying, listen, God, if you don't change my spouse, then I'm not going to follow you. Now, God, grant me the grace to live for you. What kind of grace are we going to get? So if we're demanding, if our attitude isn't like Christ's, uh, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. I, I hold this in an open hand. So the fact that we turn to the Lord for grace doesn't automatically mean that there aren't attitudes present in us that can block grace or grace being extended to us. Absolutely we can. Uh, if we are, as you say, not exemplifying humility or uh, submissiveness to the Lord's will, if, uh, if, if we are harboring those types of wrong perspectives or attitudes, certainly we forfeit grace even if we ask for it. All right, next question says this. Um, Regarding the fall of Lucifer, the beginning of uh, the battle between good and evil, we know that God created Lucifer as a beautiful angel. And uh, the passages, we don't have time to turn to them, but Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28. Uh, we know Lucifer fell. We know Satan was with Adam and Eve, uh, and Eve in the garden. Genesis, we know um, uh, God will... Uh, oh, ca that he cast Lucifer from heaven to hell, or will at the end times, according to the book of Revelation. My question is, when did Lucifer rebel or fall? Do we know? I think we do know with a great deal of certainty um, because, it, but it's more by putting things together. Uh, not a direct statement, but, uh, I mean, we have direct statements about the fall, but if you read the creation account, Genesis 1 and 2, everything is good. You read Genesis 3 and Satan is tempting Eve. So the conclusion I draw is that, the, and this isn't ironclad now, it's possible it could have been prior, 
Job 38.7 talks about the morning stars. seems to be symbolic of the angelic world rejoicing at creation. So again, just implication is that at creation, all the angels or none of the angels had rebelled. Uh, so if, if all of that is true and it's just based on pieces, then the fall would have taken place sometime between Genesis 2 and Genesis 3. Because everything's good still in Genesis 1 and everything's good in Genesis 2. It's not good in Genesis 3. Because Satan does tempt Eve to bring about the fall of mankind, which assumes, obviously, that there was always, already the fall of Satan and, he, and, and uh, the angels who went with him. So I would place the fall between Genesis 2 and 3. All right, next question says, um, Pastor Brian, when Jesus was betrayed in the garden and one of the disciples cut off one of the high priest's slaves' ears, so Peter cut off the ear of Malchus. We know that from John's gospel. John, written much later, didn't mind mentioning who did it and who the guy was because by that point it was irrelevant. The other gospel writers don't give us all that information because Peter could have still been in trouble. But John was written so late, he just tells us the names actually. So uh, it was Malchus. Uh, Did that slave become a Christian or just go on with a normal life? That's a great question, isn't it? Because you would assume that you know, this guy gets his ear cut off and Jesus reaches down and either puts it back on or touches his ear, heals it, that that would be such a revolutionary thing that he would turn to Christ. But we have no statement anywhere that he did. Now, that doesn't mean he didn't, but we just aren't told. Uh, it, it could be like Lazarus. You know, Lazarus raised from the dead and the Jewish leaders are saying, we've got to find a way to kill Lazarus again because he's just causing too many people, to, you know, to turn to the Lord. So it's possible that he just said, you know, oh, I got a new ear, and now we've got to still find a way to arrest Jesus. We, we don't know. We would assume that he would have turned to the Lord, but nothing is stated that he did. And we can't, we can't uh, I mean, we would want to assume, but we can't assume because of the hardness of man's heart. Just no guarantee that experiencing a miracle is going to cause a person to believe. All right, last question, Revelation chapter 3. It's not on this passage, but I think this is a great way to answer and end the evening, Revelation chapter 3, and it says this, based on last week's sermon, and last Sunday morning was on the danger of overconfidence, um, and Peter and the other disciples saying, oh, we'll never deny you, etc. So based on last week's sermon, can a church or a church board be overconfident? And the, the easy answer to that question is absolutely yes. And I think we have an example of that right here in Revelation 3 because in verse 16, Jesus says to the church at Laodicea, So then because you're lukewarm, neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth because you say, I am rich, have become wealthy, have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Here's a church that said, they maybe wouldn't have been willing to use these words, but we don't need the Lord. We have everything. We have everything we need. I'm rich, I've become wealthy, I have need of nothing. Verse 18, I counsel you to buy, buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich, white garments that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten, therefore be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. By the way, this is not the door of your heart or anyone's heart. This is the door of the church. Uh, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him. Please notice that none of your Bibles say, I will come into him. Okay? None of them say, I will come into him. They say, I will come into him. And coming into him and coming into him are two different things. 
Because it's not Jesus saying, I will come into him like I will come into his heart. It's I stand at the door of the church because here's a church that had pushed Jesus out. They, didn't, they were overconfident. They didn't feel like they needed him. We don't need you, Lord. They pushed him out, and he says, the church as a whole has pushed me out, but I stand at the door knocking anyone. Notice the individuality there. Anyone who hears and opens, I will come in to him and dine with him and he with me, which was the most intimate kind of fellowship in the first century, fellowshipping together around a meal. This is a, an invitation from Jesus to anyone in a church that's overconfident, in a church that's wealthy, that has pushed the Lord out, saying, I know your church has pushed me out, but you can still have intimate fellowship with me if you will open the door. It's an incredible invitation. By the way, there are sadly a lot of Christians in that kind of scenario around the world, especially in our nation. I get that. There's hardly a week that goes by I don't get someone emailing me or calling me saying, Pastor Brian, I have moved to and then they say, you know, Toronto, I have moved to a, can you help me find a church that just loves Christ and honors the word, etc.? And there are always, always people looking to find, and many times people move to, you know, Missouri or to where it is, Nevada or whatever, and they cannot just find a church that honors Christ, loves the word, preaches the word. Well, let me tell you, if you're in that scenario, this promise means a lot to you. Because this promise is saying, you know what, maybe the church you're in has pushed me out, but we can still have intimacy. We can still have fellowship. If you will open the door, I will come in to him. So the answer to your question, can a church or a church board be overconfident? Absolutely. It began with the church at Laodicea, and sadly has probably been true of many churches down through the centuries. All right, let's stand as we close in prayer this evening. Father, as we close thinking about this letter from Jesus to the church at Laodicea, we don't want to be that kind of church. We don't. We want to acknowledge that. We want to affirm that. We want to beg and plead that you would not let us become that kind of church that basically says, we, we can do this. We know what we're doing. We can pull this off. We don't need the Lord. And shove you out. The church at Laodicea had clearly done that. And thank you for that marvelous invitation from the Lord Jesus to anyone who would hear that letter, who would hear that invitation. That Jesus offers intimate fellowship, communion. He offers richness of relationship to anyone who will open. So, Father, I pray that we would be a church that is always humbly dependent on you, always mindful of, of what your Son, the Lord Jesus, said in John 15, apart from me, you can do nothing. May that be a reality in our church because it's a reality in each of our lives. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.